Morning, New Hope family. I'll tell you what I love about um, the mishap with worship at the very beginning of the service is the authenticity behind it. There's, there's no show here. And I had an individual come to me in between the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock service who was traveling through North America, and he came from um, the east side of the country and said that um, he found this to be a really refreshing environment. And he went on and on and complimented Michael about the great worship that he experienced and said, what I really enjoyed about what I just experienced was how authentic and legitimate it was. People were not enamored by the show, but rather the authenticity of the worship. So I'm always grateful to participate in that. I could, I could do that for 20 more minutes, right? And we could just call it a day, right? Be good with that. But in the meantime, I'm going to ask you to go in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be taking on another hard question this morning. If you're new to New Hope, we're working through a series this summer called Hard Questions. And we've addressed five of them so far. The sixth one this morning is the hardest one yet. Can a believer lose their salvation? And so we'll hit it straight on from Hebrews 6.4. Some of you know exactly where you land on the issue already. But do you know why? I'm going to bring you up to speed on my view on this. Many do not know why they land where they land. Maybe because of the tradition they were raised in. Uh, perhaps because of some sample readings they've done. But do they understand the defense for why they have the position that they have? I enter into this with great humility uh, simply because this is an issue I live with. I have family members who I thought at one time were identified as true Christ followers, and yet I see now that they've walked away, and they are very vocal in their walk away. And it's, it's difficult when it's in your family or when it's in your social circle with your friends, and many of us know individuals who we would say, I, I'm not sure that I could say that person is really a believer in Jesus. So I enter into this with great humility and just know as a premise, as we step into this, I, I, I wear the weight of this. So before we do this, would you pray with me that we would let God speak through His Word? Father, we come before You thanking You for the things that we could just declare as truth in these songs. We, we believe those words and that's why we sing them. We articulate them because there's, there's truth in them. We do have you as our judge, but we also have you as our defender, and so the judge is my defense, and it's just an amazing thought, God, that you go before us because of Jesus, and we come to you because of Jesus, and we ask that you would cause your word now to be alive, to be active, to be sharp, to, to do the kind of surgery that only you can do. I pray, Father, for tenderness of hearts, that we'd be willing to hear what your word has to say and come to conclusions accordingly and allow it to impact our lives in the way that we act in this coming week. I pray, God, that you would speak now. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. It's no newsflash that we live in a culture that largely believes that all you need to do to go to heaven is die. Justification by death. It's a thought a lot of individuals have, unless you're Hitler or Stalin, of course, because those guys, they obviously went immediately to hell. But most of society says, other than those really, really bad guys, all you have to do is die 
to go to heaven. Even the most basic understanding of God's Word doesn't grant the luxury of believing that. Let me just refresh you on a few things that God's Word states. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Even the most casual reading shows that no one gets into heaven unless they believe in Jesus. And historically, most Christians agree on these points. Where they differ is on the security issue. When you come against the security of the believer, can someone who walks away or lives a life in such an egregious way that it would make a sailor blush, can that person lose their salvation? I would tell you that for me, my approach to this theologically, it fits under the concept, big theological umbrella of apostasy. And you may not be familiar with that word, and just let me help you with it just a little bit. In, in the Greek language, apatasia, um, it, it actually means someone who stands apart. So a group, and that one stands apart from the group, taking a, a different position. That's the concept of apostasy actually means a defection. So it's not by an accident that the apostles have the same root word to describe them, those who belong to, but apostasia, those who stand apart from. Interestingly, when you go into the Old Testament, the exact same word apostasy in the Hebrew language actually means to be backslidden, to slide away from. And this is the approach that I bring to this question this morning because I think there's both components going on. In my experience, there are those who are functionally apostate in their actions and in their convictions, and they're openly verbal about their rejection. A good example of that would be Billy Graham's really good friend by the name of Charles Templeton. And in the case of Charles Templeton, he started out with Billy Graham as a fire hose for the gospel. He was such a powerhouse that Billy Graham actually said, Charles is a better preacher than I ever was, a better evangelist than I ever was. And together, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham founded Youth for Christ, a massive worldwide movement. And yet he came to the place where he walked away, rejected it all, and said, no more. No longer do I want a part of that, and actually wrote a book called Farewell to God. Very interestingly, at the end of his life, his wife wrote a letter to Billy Graham and said that on his deathbed, as far as she understands it, Charles Templeton came back to Christ. I don't know. I don't know the circumstances. I, I know what I read and what was written there. So my experience is that there are those who are functionally apostate in, in their actions and in their convictions, and then... There's the second component that represents better what the Hebrew language captures in the word apostasy. There are those who are apostate in their life choices, and they may not actually say out loud that they reject Jesus, but they're living as though they've rejected Jesus. In other words, they might say that they believe, but they're not actually demonstrating it. 
Now, there's no question whatsoever, professing believers can radically fall away. I frame it with this story that happened to me, real life experience, in my 20s. I was working in Grand Rapids. My wife and I both, before we were married, had jobs at a warehouse there, and I happened to be working on a shift that a lot of my friends were working on. They were on the third floor. I made my way up the stairs, and we were going to a Bible college together, and so there was a lot of theological conversation that happened while we were working in the warehouse. I'm walking down a hallway, and I hear in the distance one of my friends say to another person, what a horrible way to live. At that moment, I spun and went in the other direction because I knew what they were talking about. Every day it seemed like they had the exact same conversation, talking about the security of the believer. And they unfortunately heard me spin and they heard the click of my shoes and they said, Mark, what do you think? And I knew in that moment I had to engage. And so I turned around and I walked back into the room and I said to them, so what are you talking about today? Just to buy some time, right? And they went on to explain, and then the one who was making the argument that you could lose your salvation said this to me. Imagine that you're walking down the street, and you've just committed an egregious sin, and the next moment, you're hit by a car when you're crossing the street. Are you going to hell or are you going to heaven? And in the moment that they asked that question, I already knew where they landed, but what popped in my mind was this, wow. What a horrible way to live. The very thing that I just heard one of my friends say. You talk about living in fear and not in victory. So this is what I actually said out loud to them. How do you actually function with that mindset? Now, that's the 20-year-old version of Mark. I, I heard the conversation. This was the response back to me from one of my friends. Well, you better just make sure you're keeping your life pure that's what real Christians do, and then they don't have to worry. Okay? Left my mind reeling, spinning. Where do I land on this issue? But I also recognize that their response actually revealed their conviction. They're thinking that they're responsible to maintain their salvation. I don't know where you land on the issue this morning. I'm going to present to you my view of it. Maybe you don't know where you land. We'll come back to the hard question to bring closure to this. But first, we have a really major component to address before we directly answer the hard question. And that's why I've asked you to go to Hebrews 6 with me. Hebrews 6 adds a layer of complication. And how you interpret Hebrews 6 has a great deal to do with your view or your position on this issue. So go with me to verse 4 if you would. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And as you can imagine, there are widely and varied interpretations of that passage, and it has produced much debate, and it's produced more fights than it has insights. I'm, I'm grateful to say that there are individuals who attend New Hope who have a different view on Hebrews 6 than I do, and some of them of Arminian persuasion, and yet we're still friends. We, we don't have division 
we talk about these things and discuss these things, but these are the very things that can cause and have caused over the years denominational splits, caused church splits. I'm going to present it to you in the way that I understand it. Some individuals approach this feeling that it means that Christians, it's teaching that Christians can become lost, and that would be an Arminian view. Uh, Arminian view, if you are not familiar with that, look that up later. But that, and I respect those individuals that have their view. I just happen to disagree with this one. Some believe it's a warning, the danger of becoming disqualified from any future service in the work of the kingdom. Some actually believe it's an issue of lost rewards. Because of the disobedience of a person's life, they believe that they're going to lose their reward, but they're going to save their soul just by the skin of their teeth. And then there's some that hang their entire understanding of it on the word impossible, for it is impossible. Just look at those four words, for it is impossible. And they're translating, in that case, the word impossible as difficult, that it's difficult I would say that translation is the one you can cross off the list first and foremost, because that exact same word impossible is used only 14 verses later where it says it is impossible for God to lie. We would never insert the thought that it's difficult for God to lie, right church? We're not going to go there. So I will take that one off the list first and foremost. Here's the way I understand it. Hebrews is making an assumption. The book is speaking to the readers, the readers of this word, as being Christian. Now, the original readers might have been Jewish in their ancestry, in likelihood they all were, thus the title, Hebrews. And the author goes on to speak of many things, analogies that are related to the, the Hebrew upbringing, things that Jews would immediately identify and relate to. But what we find is the author is in the exact same boat that you're in this morning when it comes to knowing another person's faith in Jesus. You cannot evaluate another person's inward condition. You can't know. Only God sits on the great white throne, and only God knows us intimately. Only God knows where Charles Templeton landed. Only God knows where Billy Graham landed. You can look at the fruit of a person's life, but here's the way I understand this author is approaching this. I'm confident that the author of Hebrews is addressing those who profess to be Christians, who are likely active in a church, and he's urging them to look for a genuineness of the profession. Because just as it's true today, in the first century, it was also true to have people who had true professions and false professions, some even to the degree of abandoning it. So he's painting a picture, and the big picture, if the reader is turning from Jesus, he's saying they're showing that their faith is false. So here's the premise. The premise is that speaking of people who claim to have had a real relationship with Jesus. Well, what experiences have they had that's outlined here that will help us understand what's being stated? I'm going to go through these four things that he's highlighted for you, and we're going to put them up on the screen for you. He says, there's those who've been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the Word of God. Now, enlightened, very quickly, as an overview, that's a person who's had some revelation of Jesus. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've claimed a relationship with Jesus. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. 
meaning they've experienced the influence of the Holy Spirit. They've been in the room when the Holy Spirit's present, and they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, meaning they've got a knowledge of the message. And then he goes on in verse 6 and says, and then they have fallen away. Okay, let's see how we understand this. Been enlightened. There's the first one. Let's put that up on the screen. Of the four, here's the very first one. They've been enlightened. That means they've got an intellectual perception of spiritual biblical truth. But what's the word that he's using here? The word is fotizo. I want you to look very carefully at the definition that's being used here. To give light by teaching, to shine or to brighten up, illuminate or make see. I don't normally read the definition to you. I leave that to you to do, but I want you to really see it. The word fotizo is prefaced by the base word phos, P-H-O-S in the Greek language. I want you to see how it's used throughout the Bible. Because we have individuals here, it's being stated, they're mentally aware, they're informed. Well, that was true in the world of Jesus in the first century. When Jesus first came on the scene, He came on the scene in northern Israel, the region that's known as Galilee. The Bible calls it Galilee of the northern region. So Jesus comes on the scene in Galilee, and the base of the exact same word is used here in Matthew 4.16. Watch this. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great fosse, a great light. So we got all the population of the nation in the northern region of Israel. They all saw Jesus. They all heard Jesus. They all saw this great light. But not all who saw believed. Not all who saw responded. And certainly not all who saw were saved. So the light of the gospel broke in on their darkness, and their life could never be the same again. You've got to do something with Jesus. What they've perceived, they have to act on because their life has been permanently affected by Jesus to some degree. But seeing God's light and accepting God's light is not the same. That's the first premise. Let's go to the second one. They tasted the heavenly gift. So we're seeing that it was not accepted, but it's examined. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is to give a tasting, a tasting of the blessings of salvation. So that may happen because the tasting comes from somebody saw something and they heard something, like in the case of Galilee, and many people see the transforming power of Christ. So we experience that on a fairly regular basis in the United States of America. We have individuals who will come to church on Christmas and will come to church on Easter, and they will hear the information. They will see it and will actually taste of it might experience it through a baptism event, or maybe actually coming to a funeral or to a wedding and hear glimpses of the gospel. That's a tasting that he's talking about. They're tasting of the heavenly gift. So many will see the transforming power of Christ, and they'll hear the gospel. And part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to draw people into Jesus, and that's exactly what he does. He gives a spiritual taste, but the Holy Spirit will never force a person to eat. Here comes the third one. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this one's probably the most complicated, the most confusing of the three, of the four. It's talking here about association. And when you hear association, you think, well, that, that's obviously somebody who's part of. But the definition doesn't give us that luxury. 
It's not talking about possession. It's not talking about an indwelling. It's talking about someone who's present. So look at the word that is used here. It's in your notes and you see it on the screen. Metokos, very careful with the definition. A participant, a share, by implication, an associate, secondary. So someone who's there, who's present, but not actually engaged with. Hear this. The Bible never speaks of a true Christian as being associated with the Holy Spirit. It only speaks of a true Christian as having the Holy Spirit within. So we have individuals here that he's writing about who were around when the presence of the Holy Spirit was felt, but not actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And lest you think that's unlikely, it's possible to have an association with the Holy Spirit to share in what the Holy Spirit does and not be saved. I have regular conversations with people who are very new to church and have no history with the church or with understanding the gospel and say to me, there was, there was something there in that service. I don't know how to describe it. I've never felt anything like that. Something was there, but they're not yet at the stage of being a believer. That is actually what the Holy Spirit does, draws people in, enlightens their mind. So we're seeing the writer of the Scriptures here saying that there are those who could claim relationship with God, but they might even go to the degree of turning away, either in their life choice or in a verbal statement demonstrating they actually, actually never knew Him. And this is where I hear these really haunting voices of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 when He's got a huge crowd around Him. And He makes these haunting, haunting words. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name, cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. For any individual reading that, believers especially, I would hope that that just causes the hair on the back of your neck to stand up. It's like, I don't ever want to hear those words. I, I find this to be a haunting statement from Jesus. And then comes this fourth one. They tasted of the Word of God. I've discovered as I age that physically my taste buds have changed. How about you? There was an age when I was a child when I really hated asparagus. And now not so bad. Now I'm thinking it could be because my mom didn't know how to cook it. But... It could be that I had a whole lot more taste buds when I was a child, too. And those taste buds were on high alert, and that's what doctors tell us, that we have more taste buds as children than what we have now as adults. And they're highly sensitive when we're children. They're not as sensitive when we're adults. With this author is using the same analogy thought when he says spiritually. They've got some taste buds that have become insensitive, not as sensitive as what they might have been at one time. And he says he uses this as an association with the Word of God. You can sit under the teaching of the good Word of God and never actually own it. And if you don't think that's possible, the Bible gives two really great examples. Imagine if you could sit under the teaching of the greatest teacher ever in the history of the world. And I do not use that term lightly. 
Other than Jesus, who was the greatest teacher in the history of the world, Jesus declared it himself, John the baptizer. There is no one born among women who is greater than John, Jesus said. And yet, King Herod used him as a puppet. King Herod arrested John. He would invite John into the palace. He wanted to hear the transforming words that John had to share, and he was overwhelmed by this dynamic preacher. He liked to sample the word as life was not changed. What if you could sit under the second greatest teacher in all of world history? His name would be Paul. And Paul was with King Agrippa for two years. King Agrippa would bring Paul in and listen to Paul explain the gospel. Imagine that. If you could have Paul in your room for two years to speak to you about the book of Romans. And then King Agrippa comes to this place where he said, Paul, almost, almost you persuaded me. You almost got me. What if you could hear the good word and never actually owning it? Tasting is the first step to eating, and it is not wrong to taste God's Word. To some degree, every single person in this auditorium, every single person watching virtually right now, every one of us have tasted the gospel before accepting it. The problem is when you stop with just tasting. Some just keep tasting, sampling, but never going in. Before long, the appeal is gone, the taste buds become desensitized, and they become completely indifferent. And individuals like that, in my experience, show up out of obligation because somebody's making them come with them to church. So those recipients could look like, and they could sound like, and they might even seem like to be believers, and they might even say in a social setting, I go to church, I, I do that. And at some level, they have engaged, and the Holy Spirit has moved, and they've seen the work of the Holy Spirit, even to the degree of the conviction of sin. And you might think, how is that possible? Well, conviction of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit, and conviction of sin actually produces guilt. But conviction and guilt is not salvation. If you're wondering what salvation is, let me just be very, very clear with you right now. Romans 10.9 states exactly what salvation is, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. That could be salvation for a person who doesn't understand that God died for them. So the writer says, if, if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord that He came and He died for you and that God raised Him up again and you confess it and believe it with your heart, you will be saved. But conviction of that and the guilt that comes from the sin, that in itself is not salvation, it's actually acting on it. So church, I'm, I'm here to say this to you this morning, this is profoundly and stunningly scary that a person can hear the truth of God's Word and they can encounter the work of the Holy Spirit and even engage but not respond to salvation. So we've got individuals who the writer is saying they could look like and they could act like, but they never actually own it, and thereby never a genuine believer but a poser, even to the degree 
he finishes out in verse 5 by saying, they've encountered the power of the ages to come. What in the world is that referring to? My mind immediately goes to the city of Capernaum, where Jesus based his entire northern operations from. Living in the city of Capernaum, they saw many miracles. When Jesus walked on the water to cross the Sea of Galilee, it's widely believed that when he exited the sea, he exited into the city of Capernaum, very near that region. That was Peter's hometown. And and my mind goes there when I begin thinking about these issues. Yet Jesus said to the people of the city of Capernaum, woe to you, Capernaum. For if the works that had been done in you had been done in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it would remain even until this day. They had seen the powers of the ages to come. They had seen Christ firsthand. Look at his actual words. Sometimes it helps for you just to read it. Look at Matthew eleven twenty three. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Wow. So we've got these individuals that the author is saying who have been enlightened, and yet either virtually by their lifestyle or by their verbal statement, they walk away from what they've heard and what they've seen, and he makes the argument for that one, repentance is impossible. Because resistance to the gospel eventually builds up this immunity in a person's system. I want you to look at the phrase and watch it very closely. What we started with comes right out of verse 4. It's impossible. And then comes to verse 6. He concludes by the statement. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. This is a really severe warning. Because what we're talking about here is someone that's actually experienced an understanding of the gospel. But the impossibility comes because those who turn away are guilty, he says in verse 6, of crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. How do I understand that? Let's start here. And I'm going to ask you to say amen verbally if you agree with the statement. God will and God does forgive anyone who truly repents. Okay? So I think we're on the premise that we're mostly all on the same page here. So that means if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, God has judicially forgiven you as we spoke of last week. Eternally, you are saved. What you should be noticing in this individual's statement who's authored this book of Hebrews is it does not say that individual cannot be forgiven. He's not going there. Because God will forgive anyone who truly repents. What's in mind is repentance. He's saying it's impossible for these people to repent. What is that? That's the human side of the equation. That's the human side of the issue. Forgiveness is God's side of the issue. God is the one who grants forgiveness to anyone who truly repents. But repentance is what's in mind here. He's saying it's possible to so resist the grace of God that they arrive at a state of heart in which repentance is an impossibility. It's not impossible because God is unwilling, 
But it's impossible because the person is so hardened, they will not repent. And that's what's being described in Romans chapter 1, when Paul said, those individuals, they live such an egregious sinful life, God gave them over to their reprobate heart. Fine, you want to go? Go. I'll just let you go. Dr. Donald Guthrie summed up this pretty well when he was talking about this. I want you to see his quote. It's in your notes this morning. This self-hardening to the gospel that we're talking about, it produces, he says, an impenetrable casing which removes all sensitivity to the pleadings of the Spirit. So the author goes on in verse 6 to say, they are crucifying once again the Son of God. How is that true? Well, they will not repent because they've made a life-altering decision. As far as they're concerned with all the evidence in, they've decided Jesus is not their Savior. So ultimately, they're saying, I agree with those who crucified him. I reject and will not identify with Jesus. And the author is saying, that's a shaming of the Son of God. That's nailing him back to the cross, and his argument is, what hope is there for somebody like that? What possible hope if they've heard the truth and they've walked away, they've hit the point of no return? What we would call the unforgivable sin. Israel hit that point as a nation deciding that Jesus was not the Savior. And so it's pronounced that they committed the unforgivable sin because they would not receive Jesus. Notice it's not adultery, it's not addictions, it's not a life full of regrets. God can handle all of that and more, much, much more, believe me. But there comes a point in which a person is unable to repent because of the hardness of their heart. New Hope Church, if you can repent this morning, if you're in that place where you can repent, you are so very fortunate I'm here to say, if you can still respond to guilt, literally, I'm saying, praise God for that. Praise God that your heart is sensitive and open and tender to the things of God, that you can be in that place. In verse 6, he says, that one's holding him up to contempt, and they put Christ to open shame, and they're declaring by their life choices indirectly, they're saying, yeah, I, I once was interested in Jesus. I, I actually experimented with that. I thought that was a thing for me. But the things I had to give up to have that, I, I want those things back. back. That, that thing is much better for me than Jesus. Jesus is not better in this case. He doesn't make me happy. So they're saying, I choose that as better. For me, Jesus is not better. Who can imagine, after having thrown such dishonor on Jesus, that that one would ever come back again? One brilliant theologian I read said, that person actually takes their place with Judas. They ate with him. They walked with him. They processed everything they had to say. But in the end said, yeah, not for me. I, I reject that. Should anyone who has been enlightened walk away to the degree of rejection? The Bible is saying the end result is going to be really ugly. My conclusion is it's the opportunity for receiving salvation that's lost. My conclusion is they actually never had it. So that's how I would respond to this hard question. We, we get to address that now as the major component, and it's going to go really fast. 
we can directly answer the hard question, can a believer lose salvation? And my conclusion is this, a true believer can never fear the loss of salvation because God says that person is eternally secure, not because of something that you are doing, but because of what He is doing, because God is the one who holds you. And the clarity on that comes directly from Jesus Himself. So let me point you to that. Look with me on the screen, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. That is an amazing statement. God the Son says that God the Father, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, has you. That's the work of God in your life, the perseverance of the saints, it's called, and it comes directly from God's own statement. And he's saying, it's not of your efforts. There's nothing that can separate you from me. That's why Paul writes Romans 8.35. Look, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we get this amazing conclusion to this imagery that he's painted in Hebrews comes from verse 7. And he borrows it from the world of agriculture and begins talking about farmers and he begins talking about rain. Anybody here get the gully washer at their home I got last night? I, I know if you live in a certain parts of town, you didn't see it. But on the east side of town, wow. And the night before, it just dumped and my lawn was the benefactor of that. It, it received it and everything's green where a lot of the state is dry, but that plays into this image here. Verse 7, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But here's the counterpoint. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The rain falls. He's got the imagery here, the gospel is heard, and the gospel is planted just like a seed, and there's nourishment, and there's growth from some of the seed, and some of the growth is beautiful, and some of the growth is productive, and some of the growth is unproductive, and it's false, and it's the same rain, and it's the same ground, and it's the same environment, but some of it is thorny and some of it is thistles, and it's worthless, and its end will be to be burnt. And you need to see this, that there is no middle ground. There's no gray area. It's one or the other. Where do you land? And then in verse 9, he ends it by just hitting this relief valve for everybody. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Do you think at this point they're breathing a collective sigh of relief? It's like, 
oh man, I thought he was talking about me there for a minute. And then all of a sudden, we believe better things of you, better things than apostasy belong to you, namely salvation. The reason we approach this so intensely and so emphatically is this question is haunting. Can a believer lose their salvation? Here's my conclusion, New Hope. If you can lose it, it would have to mean you did something to gain it, which flies in the face of Scripture. It's inconsistent with God's Word. Ephesians 2.9 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. A Christian cannot lose what the Bible says happens to you at salvation. Something happened to me at the moment of salvation when I was 14 years old. The same thing that happened to you if you are in Jesus Christ, the same thing happened to you. We're told first and foremost that salvation is a gift of God and God's gifts are irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty nine. So here's what happened to me. A Christian is a new creation. How could I be a new creation and then not a new creation? The redeemed cannot be unpurchased. The adopted cannot be unadopted. Eternal life cannot be by its very nature temporary. And God says he gives all those things to us at the moment of salvation. And I know this to be true. God cannot and will not renege on his word because God cannot lie. That's the truth of scripture. So... Where you land might be different than me on this issue, but I am, I'm sure we're all of the same thought. In this very moment, and in every moment leading up to the point of your entrance into heaven, I hope you believe this right now, that Jesus is holding on to you. If it was dependent upon you, you would have lost it long ago. But it's dependent upon the everlasting arms of God you can't lose it because you didn't earn it. And the person who is suggesting that you can lose it, this is my conviction, is suggesting that their sin is greater than God's grace. I believe God's grace is greater than my sin. And that's my conviction. So I send you out the door with a handle on a verse this morning that I want you to carry with you. And it comes from the book of Jude. Jude is only one chapter. So here's Jude, verse 25. To him is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. And we would send amen and amen and amen and amen along with that. So very practically, what do you do if you have someone in your life who's in the place where we're reading about this morning, and you're thinking, I'm, I'm not really sure that they're actually walking with Christ. E either they are living as though they don't belong to Christ, or they've openly walked away. What do you do? First and foremost, in great humility, you pray for them. And you continue to pray. And here's the second thing you do. And wait. Because if the Holy Spirit cannot force anyone to eat it, you certainly cannot force another human to take it. So in great humility, you pray. And I would end with this. 
We don't know the final outcome. I am as certain as I stand here this morning that there will be many surprises when we get to heaven because we simply don't know the condition or the internal status of a human heart. Peter denied Jesus openly. God restored him openly. Not everyone who fails has fallen past the point of no return. So only God can see the soul, and if he's changed a soul, you can be sure he will preserve that soul. Let's pray, church. Father, I thank you for the way that we were able to examine your word this morning, and it's so sobering that that anyone would want to walk away from what you have offered is just perplexing to us. But at the same time, God, that your mercy is new every morning and your grace is greater than our sin, and you can and will forgive if a person would repent. Thank you, Father, how you've clarified things for us this morning, but you've probably stimulated many questions, times as many people are here. So, Father, here's how I pray for our church. I pray that you would cause us to walk with a greater degree of boldness for your kingdom, knowing that there is no middle ground. We're either for you or against you, and that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I stand among individuals who believe that there's no way to the Father but through you. So bond us, bind us together, Father, in a commonality of love. And where there's disagreement, Father, don't let it turn into division, but rather sharpen us. We pray for this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'll be down here in the front after the service. And if you want somebody to pray with you over in the prayer room, there'll be individuals waiting to talk with you. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.